Welcome to the Podcast Leadership Forum, a conversation with leaders who serve the public good. My name is Trevor Brown, and I'm privileged to serve as Dean of the John Glenn College of Public Affairs at The Ohio State University, where we aspire to fulfill a simple phrase that Senator John Glenn used to describe what we do, inspire citizenship and develop leadership. I also have the honor of serving as the host of this conversation series. So welcome to a thoughtful and reflective conversation about leadership in the public sector. I'm joined today by Irv Dennis, who served for almost four decades at the accounting and financial services firm Ernst & Young, where he retired in 2016 as a senior account partner. After playing a little golf, he was called back into service, this time public service, as the chief financial officer of the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development. Irv's tenure at HUD was remarkable, to say the least, as he transformed HUD's accounting practices in a relatively short period of time to deliver the first clean audit at the agency in many, many years. He brought business practices to a government agency that is often characterized as highly resistant to change, and he succeeded in improving the financial performance of the agency in a highly politicized environment. Irv, Welcome to our podcast, and thank you for joining me for a conversation about leadership in the public sector. Thank you, Trevor. I appreciate the invite and look forward to the conversation. Great. Well, let's let's start with a, a little bit of background on HUD. I just want to sort of mm-hmm. characterize for the audience um, the agency and, and what more importantly, what was the state of affairs when you arrived? What was the challenge as you um, and as you saw it, and and what was your goal? Well, you know, HUD is a a big, complicated agency, like many federal agencies, and and the mission is to provide safe and affordable housing uh, and communities to to those in need in our society. Um, HUD uh, operates at about a $68 billion budget. It has 12 programs that monitor and account for and and oversee 38 different grants. Uh, It also has uh, the mortgage world and the FHA and Ginnie Mae, and they also oversee disaster recovery funds, and that that portfolio is about $90 billion. The the mortgage world is about $1.3 trillion in FHA loans and approximately $2.3 trillion in the the Ginnie Mae world. Um, So it's a big, complicated agency. And uh, when I arrived, the financial infrastructure was, I would call it dysfunctional. Um, It was the weakest of the financial infrastructure of the cabinet agencies. Um, And it can be characterized as uh, wasn't able to get a clean audit opinion for for, for eight years when I got there. There was four disclaimers. There's nine material weaknesses, several significant deficiencies, and basically 14 areas within the financial infrastructure that could not be properly audited or accounted for. Um, They were not in compliance with uh, many of the other federal reporting, financial reporting uh, laws that the the government has, the the Data Act and the Bowen Act. And I I won't explain those, but they are basically uh, reporting mechanisms to let the, let um, let the, the, the citizens of the United States know how grant money is spent and, and the status of it. Um, the IT systems were antiquated, uh, and basically they just lacked a lot of lacked credibility within the uh, intergovernment agencies amongst Congress and White House and General Accountability Office. So it was really in poor shape. So Irv, let, let me interrupt there, and thanks for that context. I want to put those two things together before we get to what you sort of established as your goal coming in. So you got a ton of money, taxpayer money flowing through HUD, 
and then you've got what you've described as weak financial infrastructure. What's yeah. the risk? Well, the, the risk is leakage of taxpayer funds through fraud, waste, and abuse. Um, you know, the money, HUD, like many agencies that offer grants, is just the intermediary from Congress appropriates funds, Treasury releases funds through the agencies, and the agency is responsible for overseeing the disbursement of those funds out to the state and local communities. And there's a lot of uh, entities and a lot of companies and a lot of uh, people that touch that flow of funds. And without the proper oversight and controls, a lot of it could get leaked through fraud at worst, uh, abuse, or, or just waste and not managing it properly. Okay. All right. Good. Thank you for that yeah. clarification. A lot, yeah. lot of money at risk there. Yes. So you, you charted out a long list of deficiencies. As you, you know, in those the first days, what did you identify as the principal goal you were trying to achieve? What were your targets? Yeah, the number one goal was to get a clean audit opinion. Um, and you do that through cleaning up the financial infrastructure. Uh, there were a lot of areas, like I mentioned, 15 or 16 areas that needed remediation. And when you review that, and you, once, and I'm sure we're going to talk about this, once we understood the root cause of that, the, the real goal was to improve the financial infrastructure, to clean up the material weaknesses or remediate the material weaknesses and obtain a clean audit opinion. So people and users of those financials have confidence that the, the financial, there's financial integrity within the, uh, the HUD's infrastructure. So just a little bit more context before we go into the steps you took. Why, what's the diagnosis on why HUD was not able to do that for the eight years prior? Well, um, it starts with leadership in many ways. The CFO office was um, essentially vacant. The person the prior administration had appointed, unfortunately, had passed away in, in, the, in the position early on, and they were never reappointed. So the office was basically without a CFO for eight years. And without that leadership, you start to see that deterioration. Yeah. Okay. All right. So, you know, classic management lesson is lay out your first hundred days, right? You got to move fast. And so what were those first hundred days like for you? What did you try to accomplish and what was your, your approach? Well, the first hundred days for me was uh, I had a lot to learn. You know, as you mentioned, I spent uh, 37 years in the, in the private sector with Ernst and Young and, um, it was, I knew what I didn't know. And there was a lot, I didn't know government. And at Ernst and Young, I was really focused on the commercial side, working on large global accounts as an audit partner. Um, so what I, how I approached the first hundred days, I needed to do a lot of learning. Uh, I needed to learn the business of HUD. I needed to learn the infrastructure of HUD. I needed to understand how Washington worked and what was the interplay between HUD and Congress and the White House and the General Accountability Office. Uh, I spent a lot of time developing relationships. Uh, I needed to build my credibility. I needed to build my credibility with the CFO staff. I needed to build it with all HUD leadership, the political and the career. And I needed to build relationships with with Congress and the appropriations team, uh, with Office of Management Budget. Um, and I needed to understand how the, the financial um, statement close process worked and how numbers rolled up. And I, I took a deep dive in understanding the root cause of the issues. And, and the way I think of it, uh, Trevor, when, when I evaluate a company, I did this in, in my, with my audit experience, 
there are four areas that you evaluate to understand the, the strength of a company, and that's governance, people, process, and technology. So I spent a lot of time in that first 100 days really trying to understand the strengths and weaknesses within those four areas. Okay, I want to I ask about each of those, but the first, yeah. just, just from a sort of leadership standpoint, when you said you needed to do a lot of this, yeah. was it literally you um, yourself or had you quickly tried to assemble a team of people around you? Because that's a lot of stuff to do for one person for an agency of that scale and scope. Yeah, no, this was not a this was not a nerve dentist effort. This was a complete team effort. And what I did in the first hundred days was again understand what I didn't know and took the opportunity to use my team to help me understand the business, help me understand HUD, help me walk around Washington without stepping on landmines. And I had a phenomenal deputy uh, a CFO who, who worked his whole career inside of government, so he really knew Washington. Um, he helped me set up meetings with all of the inter governmental agencies that I needed to speak with. And I spent a lot of time with each of them. I had 12 direct reports and I spent a lot of time with each of them, understanding them personally, understanding what their role was within HUD, understand from their perspective what the issues were and what they needed and how I could help them uh, get to a point of remediation. So what I really provided was, and I'm sure we'll talk about this, is the overall vision and strategy and what my team helped me do was build to that and have, what, 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 what do we put in place to make it happen? So let, take us through that, that recipe that you learned from your years of working with private corporations of, of governance, people, process, and technology. And let's just take them one at a time. Sure. So, so governance, um, you know, what, what were you specifically focusing on there within HUD? So... In the private sector world, large corporations have multiple subsidiaries operating in multiple countries. And at HUD, I, there were 12 programs, like they mentioned, and then you also had the C-suite offices, and it was very siloed. Each of those programs worked in isolation. Um, if they wanted to make a business process change or if they wanted to make an IT change, or they wanted to change something within their, their HR group, it was all done in isolation without looking at HUD at large. So it didn't have that overarching governance structure from, again, I'll put it in private sector, a board of directors and a C-suite executives all working together. So um, we, we uh, labeled it as try to develop a one HUD mentality. And the governance needed a lot of work and. And uh, we, we put processes in place to improve that, um, which uh, we can talk about now or talk about later. But that was really important to, uh, to get a quick handle on that and put some processes in place. And uh, what made it a little more challenging in, in government versus the private sector is you almost have two layers of management that are very distinct, the political and the career. So it was important in this governance structure to get the political people working with the career and, and working together to focus on uh, the remediation and improvements that we needed to do. Let's put a pin in that one. I wanna come back to that one and get deeper into it, but I wanna walk through the other three as sure. well. So let's, let's turn to people. I can yeah. imagine that there was a lot of skepticism about you and your approach from career civil servants at HUD. You were coming from the private sector. You'd never had any public sector experience before. Right. How'd you overcome that skepticism and, and, and focus on the people in the organization and, and motivate them to undertake change? 
So, yeah, I, I really, you know, I was in retirement mode, right? So I really was doing this to do meaningful work and, and give back to the community. And I did that through public service. And so I didn't come with any agenda other than to help my team, my team, the immediate team being this, the office of the CFO. Um, so and I, I did not come with a sense of arrogance that I knew more than them because I didn't. And I told them, you know, we need to work together on this. And I knew financial excellence. They knew government. And I said, we got to just merge those together to, to make this happen. And, you know, when the people area needed a lot of work, but it wasn't about the people themselves. It was about the processes within government. And, uh, you know, people need um, they need uh, the right tools. They need the right training and they need the right mentoring to, to, to blossom in their careers. And the government at large, I don't think, does a great job of providing necessarily the training aspect or the right mentoring. And they certainly didn't provide the right tools. And, and we'll, we'll talk about that as part of the remediation. So I made that a focus and they were looking for leadership. And these, the people within inside of government are very, very smart. They're very mission driven. It's, it's very impressive to see how hard they work for the American people. Um, but what they needed was, you know, again, some leadership and, and someone supporting them to, to show them the way to remediate. Great. Okay. Now let's, let's, you mentioned processes. Yeah. Sort of diagnose for us what the process challenge was and what you saw as the corrective. So from a process standpoint, you know, there's lots of policies and procedures inside of, of government, as you would expect. And a lot of them were old, they were outdated, they weren't current. Um, if the people were to change roles and jobs, there wasn't really a footprint to follow. And we, uh, I think there's probably over 250 processes and we took the policy statements, if you will, and we, we tweaked them around quite a bit. And we, we updated them and we talked about the importance of the ones that really would help us with the remediation efforts. Um, you know, the, the infrastructure of government, is, you, know, uh, you know, operates on a industrial revolution uh, infrastructure or platform that was done back in the 1900s. And we're in a digital age right now, right? And, and uh, the government hasn't caught up with that. But so a lot of the processes that we put in place were around IT modernization. And that made a huge difference and created a lot of efficiency and effectiveness. So that's the type of process that we uh, that we focused on. You're, you're doing a great job putting the softball or the T-ball up so we go right to the next yeah. one, which is technology. <laughs> Techno, so yeah. I, I, I heard this factoid once. It was probably three years ago. So it's it's been some time that, that yeah. HUD had no IT staff under the age of 30. That that suggests an agency relying on technology from a bygone era was was that right. the case? I mean, was it the, the case? Absolutely, it was the technology. I was very antiquated. It was aged. It didn't communicate well within itself, and um, it was it was very fragile. Yeah, and I often speak of the technology as being a, a bowl of spaghetti that's aged and dried and you put some pressure on one side or the other and it's, and it's ready to crack. And the a, the workforce within uh, HUD, which I don't know is terribly different than other agencies, but there's a high percentage that are eligible for retirement over the next uh, few years. So technology is going to be really critical when you have that, that environment. And 
you know, they were operating some of their platforms under COBOL and COBOL was something I dealt with in college back in 1980. You know, it's not a a platform of choice in today's world, but technology needed a a lot of work. And, um, and, uh, you know, it's, that's hard to change technology. And many times it's not about the IT, it's about business process changes. So we really had to think all of that through and you know, at, at the end of the day, we'll, we'll, we'll chat about the IT modernization was a big part of our remediation. And it wasn't about changing the program. It was about putting cheaper technology on top of the, the infrastructure that was there, you know, with robotics and, and, um, and data extraction techniques and artificial intelligence and things like that. But, yeah, it was a very, very – IT was – it, it was shocking how antiquated it was. So but before we go deeper into some of these, just want you to reflect a little bit on this, this quartet of, um, of sort of things to work on in that first hundred days, governance, people, process, and technology was born of your experience working in the private sector. Now that you've had a little bit of time to reflect and you, you sort of, not, not that you had a bias, but this was a framework that you used successfully in other places. Did you think it was the right framework? Like, was that the right quartet of, of things to be focused on? Um, well, you know, governance, people, process, and technology is in every entity, no matter what, no matter what size or, or, or what industry. So um, what was helpful to me in the audit world was uh, as an audit partner, I rotated large accounts every five years. You only can sign as as an opinion for five years for independence reasons by the SEC. Uh, So I had to quickly assess companies and they're the four areas. If you, if uh, you know, strong people might be able to hide weak technology and and strong technology might be able to hide weak people, but if it's all working together, it's it's a uh, you know it's it's the risk assessment that you do. And and uh, when you, you walk into an entity, you you look at those four things, understand where the strengths and weaknesses are, you can start to identify where the risks are, and that's really how I approached it. Okay, so let's let's take that chronological approach. So that first hundred days was a lot of assessment, relationship building, and by extension, trust building and listening. So then you've got your sort of diagnosis. What, tell us what comes next. How did you decide which of those things to prioritize and where to really lean into? Well, I had a very strong sense of uh, what needed to be done. I had a very strong sense of where we needed to be. And I, once I did that evaluation, I knew where the areas were that I needed to focus on. So I... At this point, after the 100 days, I had my credibility built with my team, with the leadership of HUD, and with the intergovernmental agencies that, that we, we, we dealt with. Um, what I had to do then was get resources. And I, I did that through creating a document that uh, laid out very clearly what the issues were. And that's the first time many uh, folks had, had seen it in that, with that type of clarity. Um, and I needed my people to help me build the the uh, the, the um, financial platform, the financial framework to make that happen. We put a very detailed financial plan in place, and they helped me build that out. And then they started to get ownership of it and feel the ownership of it. And when I, once I developed the transparency plan and what the current state of affairs are, I documented what the causes were. 
We put a detailed remediation plan in place, identified the resources that were needed. I understood the barriers that it was to success, and there were barriers. And once we put all that together, my team was bought into it. That became the, the, the platform or the energy to make the remediation happen. And we put together a very detailed plan uh, and, um, to, uh, to improve and just to launch the project. So I'm gonna fast forward in a minute to the end, yeah. just talk, talk, have you talk about how you embed some of these changes. But before we get there, I wanna talk about, um, or have you talk about that your, your experience and the differences between, then you've alluded to some of these, the public and the yeah. private sectors, and what, what the sort of major challenges were. And you could pick any one of those four areas we were just talking about yeah. as an example, but just start by describing what you see as the primary differences between the two sectors. The number one difference in my mind is the word accountability and consequences. Mm-hmm. Um, when you think of the financial financial health of, of HUD, which was was terrible, uh, with the material weaknesses and the disclaimers, lack of audit, that can't happen in the private sector. Mm-hmm. And you know, stakeholders will pull out, shareholders will put out. You wouldn't be able to uh, to get debt. Uh, entities just don't survive in the private sector with that with those those weaknesses. And you think about why it's happening in government. Well, the same folks that were working on the infrastructure of HUD, the financial infrastructure, were were there for ten years. Again, great people, um, but they weren't being held accountable, and there were no consequences. There's plenty of oversight in government. You have the oversight of the the audit process. You have the oversight of the General Accountability Office. You have the oversight of Congress. So lots of reports being written about how poor the situation was, but no one was no one was really forcing change. And so that's a big difference, probably the number one difference. The, the second difference is uh, when we got into exercise, got into the process of performing the remediation, it was very clear that um, you didn't have the command or the control of the resources in government that you do in the private sector. Uh, and the resources that you need to make change are people and dollars. And in the private sector, it's easier to put people in place to succeed, terminate, and hire. Those three things are much easier in the private sector. It's easier to get dollars. In government, um, it's very, very difficult to, to fire someone if they're not performing. It's very difficult to move someone out of the position if they're not performing. The hiring process can take anywhere from eight months to a year within HUD. I, I don't know what the other agencies, but at least that was our experience at HUD. Um, so resources, the people side are very difficult to, to, uh, to, uh, to maneuver around to, to make quick progress. And, and the budget process is extraordinarily difficult in, in, in Congress. You know, the appropriations let you know, <laughs> they appropriate the money and they let you know how to spend it, when to spend it. And when I went to the appropriators uh, laying out our, our plan and asking for dollars, they balked at it. And they didn't give me anything nearly what I wanted in the first year until I proved myself. So those two resources are very difficult to control and, and a big difference between the private sector and, and government are, you know, consequences and controlling resources. So I, I want you to elaborate on each. These are great. I just yeah. want to restate. I thought the statement that there's a lot of oversight in government, but very little accountability, at least in the, right. the, the part of it that you experienced. Right. So how did you, during the time you were there, 
change the culture and the operation to move towards accountability? So um, my team, the direct reports um, within the CFO office, they were they were tired of getting beat up. They wanted change. They just didn't know how to do it. And um, once we, I came in with a vision, I got them bought into helping me put the remediation plan together. Uh, we had a little bit of success in what we were doing. Um, and they knew I was there to support them without any other agenda other than to help them make an improvement. Uh, once I got them bought into that, there was a lot of excitement. And I took the blame off of them. They were feeling this was all the CFO shop. And, and I said on day one, in my experience, most of the material weaknesses in companies are not within the CFO shop. It's out in the operations. And that's exactly what happened. All of the, the, the material weaknesses and the aged audit recommendations were out of the programs and what the CFO's office, their biggest weakness was they did not have the controllership oversight and functions. So programs were doing stuff in isolation of the CFO office. And we talked a lot about leadership. I said, leadership doesn't start at the, it starts at the top, but it's so critical throughout the complete organization. And you need to be a leader within your sphere of influence. And we spent a lot of time talking about that. And I basically said, you need to walk around HUD like you own the place and no one should be making, as it relates to financial infrastructure, and no one should be making changes and, and without our approval from a policy and procedure standpoint. And once I gave them the courage and the support um, to, to lead in that regard, it was a big, big difference. Yeah, yeah. no, so you, you really did inculcate a culture of accountability and by empowering your your. Employees. Yeah. Now, now let's switch to the. You made the statement that you know you don't control resources, whether people yeah. or dollars. And you put this proposal before Congress to say, "Look, I've done my diagnosis. Here's what I think we need to do to change and reform." And and they said no. And then you you said you needed to prove yourself first. Yeah. So how did you do that? How you know, take us through what what was involved in proving yourself to Congress to be able to secure the resources you needed to. Well, it's, it's very similar to what I, what I did when I went to a board meeting or in a, uh, an audit committee meeting. I, I took a, I prepared a document that laid out very clearly what the issues are, why they need to improve. Here's a path to improvement. Here's what I need to, to here are the resources I need. Here's what the results will be. And I, I took that document and I shared that with all four corners of Congress. I shared it with General Accountability Office and I shared it at the White House and, and OMB. And once people saw that there was a path forward, they started to buy in themselves. Um, so I, I, you know, I brought a private sector mindset into how do I, how do I convince leadership yeah. of what, what I need? And uh, Congress balked, quite frankly. You know, I asked for uh, $250 million, and their view was, that's $250 million, I can't get to the people you serve. And I tried to convince them that that $250 million is going to be able to allow me to get more money to the people we yeah. serve without the fraud, waste, and abuse. And uh, they didn't give me everything I wanted up front, but they said, I'll tell you what, I'll give you a little bit. Right now, you show me some progress and we'll give you more later. And that's, that's in essence what happened. Yep. 
Yeah. So, so now let, let's take it to, to the end, which is another difference, I suppose, between the public and the private sector, which is not to say that people don't exit out of the private sector, but there are these, these milestones, there's this sort of exit points, i.e. the transition of one administration to another, where sometimes people stay on, but often a new administration says we want our, our people in. So then mm-hmm. your, your time was up. How did yeah. you, what steps did you take to try and embed some of these changes and fundamentally that culture of accountability as you as you yeah. walked out? You know, it's interesting when you, you say I walk out, one of the other big differences in private and government is the complete leadership change every four yeah. to eight years. It wasn't me walking out. It was all the politicals walking yep. out at yep. large. And so, and I was very conscious of this early on in the process, like what does happen when, if, if the next administration has a different agenda uh, and a president's management agenda, I should say. And uh, it was really important to me to get the, the career folks bought into what we were trying to do. And once I, they believed it, they understood how to make it happen and understood what, what levers to push to, to sustain the progress and continue the progress um, that's what was going to make it sustainable. And uh, we spent a lot of time talking about that. And uh, fortunately for me, a lot of the stuff as it relates to the financial excellence within the internal control structure, they bought in and that was, that was actually going quite well when I left. Some of the IT modernization stuff that impacts a lot of the programs, uh, I, I, you know, I'm not sure that that would continue. I hope it is and I hope it does, but you know, that requires buy-in at, at all departments. So getting the people buy-in that are going to be leading it going forward was really important to me. So as we, as we pull this to a close, normally I would, would ask, you know, what, what advice counsel do you have for aspiring young people going into this? But I, I want to pivot this a little bit in light of your, your experience and your success. What, what advice do you have for agency leaders, whether they be at the federal level, state, local, where the context is somewhat similar to what you went into, what, what advice do you have to them about how to attract people into government service, particularly those that perhaps like you came from, from the private sector? What's, what's the pitch? The, to me, the pitch, and I've become a huge fan of um, people going into public service and, and, and working inside the agencies and at any government level. Um, I, I think it's a fascinating career spot for people, either as a full career or, 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 you know, as a stopping point in their career for three or four years. Um, I I think the pitch is the government needs to advertise themselves more. And there's two things actually they probably need to do. They need to improve the infrastructure to attract young talent. You know, these these folks out of college today like this high tech digital world we're in. Government probably needs to catch up to it to attract. Um, But that's on the infrastructure side. When you get think about policy and others, um, the, the government's a phenomenal place to work. You know, there's no industry you can't learn. Um, they, they touch it all, you know, the regulatory side, policy side, uh, infrastructure side. Um, but if the government did a better job of advertising itself on college campus, getting out and reaching people, the students, I, I think it would be really helpful to them. And, uh, you know, I, one of the things I'm doing now with American Cornerstone Institute is developing an educational program to help uh, educate people on the executive branch and on the infrastructure. Because I really do think if we can get um, civic minded people started that have a, you know, some private sector experience or um, have that knowledge and really helpful to the financial infrastructure of government. 
Well, Irv, thank you for a really invigorating and insightful conversation. And thank you, even though it was it was late in your career, yeah. for, for uh, taking those great talents of yours and putting them into practice yeah. in public service. We, we all are the, the beneficiaries. So thank you very much. Yeah, thank you, Trevor. I, I tell everyone that listens, it's, uh, it was one of my favorite three and a half years of life. I really, really did enjoy it. So. <laughs>